Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Ben, that's a very, uh, radio DJ voice. It's just my voice. I know. <laughs> uh, I could, I could push it more radio DJ if you want. Give me a taste. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene. <laughs> With Ben and Sarah! <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, what are we watching today, Ben? <laughs> today, Sarah, we're watching The Mummy's Hand from Universal Pictures. Alright, so this is going to be a sequel to The Mummy from 1932. Kind of. Okay. So it'll be more like Return of Dr. X. Mm. In terms of its relationship to the first Dr. X. Uh, yeah, I mean... So we've had sort of, we've had sequels. Mm-hmm. We've also had like in-name only sequels, we've sort of called them. Yeah, yeah. So The Mummy's Hand, um, this term did not exist in the 1940s, but today, in like today's film criticism lingo, we would call The Mummy's Hand a reboot, in that it's sort of a different, distinct take on a pre-existing property. Reboots are not about, like, a creative concept so much as they're about, they're like an IP concept, right? Yeah. It's, the point of a reboot is not that you keep the ideas and change the branding. The Mm. point of a reboot is that you keep the branding and change the ideas. That what's valuable when you reboot a franchise is the name and the kind of, like, the aesthetic and the, like, trappings, but you want to change everything inside. Cool. That might bode well in The Mummy's Hand's favor. Yeah, you weren't a big fan of the original Mummy, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the original Mummy, maybe we should sort of get our listeners clued in uh, if they haven't heard that episode yet. Sure. We'll uh, take them through the process of mummification Mm -hmm. and get them wrapped up in linen Mm-hmm. and uh, tucked into their sarcophagus to hear what's coming next. It's episode 35 if you want to go hear the whole thing. During that episode, I kind of gave context for Egyptian belief around death, rituals around death, and what the process of mummification kind of looks like. I also went into some great detail about who some of these historical figures were that the film based itself on. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want that whole nitty-gritty... Episode 35 is what you're looking for, but this is just kind of an overview, more focused on the beliefs on death and mummification. So the ancient Egyptians believed that you are made up of several different forces, and ka is your life force, the literal thing that gives you life. When you eat, you feed your life force. When you die, that life force leaves you. There's another aspect within you called Ba, and that's what essentially is your personality. And this does not leave you when you die. So in order for you, specifically you, your personality, to enter the afterlife, you need to go through funerary rites to separate your Ba from your body, and then your Ba will rejoin Ka, your life force, in the afterlife. And when your Ba and Ka join up again, you become an Ak which literally means effective one. So you have a sense of agency in the afterlife, whether to help your descendants or, you know, get through trials in the afterlife, etc. Now the trick here, um, kind of the monkey's paw situation with this, is that your ba, your personality, needs to return to your physical body each night. Mm. So it's very important to preserve that body so it has something to return to. Anything that you bury with the person that helps them in the afterlife, a lot of like food or honey would be put into these tombs because your ka needs to like still eat. And if your ba needs to return to your body every night, what happens if there's no body to return to? It just fades away. Gotcha. So 
if you stick the body in the ground and just bury it and the worms eat it, that's not good. Yeah, the worm, the worms got you. Right. So you need to preserve the body, hence. Mummification. Egypt's in the desert. So mummification does happen naturally in some areas. Um, desiccation happens. Um, but the actual, like, for lack of a better word, artificial mummification process that the Egyptians refined um, took about 70 days from the moment of death to the person's burial. With mummification, your internal organs would be removed. Priests would start the desiccation process through special salts, and they'd wrap your body in linen. Um, now, they would take out all of your organs and put them into special jars, but they would leave your heart in your body because that organ was seen as the center for your personality, mm. for your ba. So as I kind of mentioned, when you're buried, your family buries a lot of wealth and goods with you to help you in the afterlife. One thing that they would also bury you with is the Book of the Dead, which was really more of a how-to manual for getting through the afterlife. Okay. This would include stuff like how to identify certain gods, um, and ways to get through some of the trials that are coming up ahead. And the reason I bring up the Book of the Dead is, in the first mummy, it's in a series of scrolls, but an archaeologist reads from these scrolls and ends up resurrecting Imhotep. Mm-hmm. Kind of the main trial that your family would want to prepare you for is called the weighing of the heart, where your heart is weighed against the feather of truth. Right. Um, and the reason this is important is because if you fail this trial, if your heart ends up weighing more than this feather of truth, your heart gets eaten and you, you fade away. Your ba is consumed, you're gone. But if you pass, if Anubis, who supervises this trial, goes like, yeah, your heart weighs the correct amount, and Thoth records the correct result, then... You are deemed worthy, and your Ba and Ka can join together and become Ak, the effective one. Okay. Now, while I covered a lot of this contextualization for the first mummy, it didn't actually... The film itself didn't really stick to what you could say was um, fact when it came to the mythology. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of an interesting blend, because it felt like... Like, it was definitely, like, a fictionalized version, but it felt like the fictionalization of someone who, like, knew what the real thing was. You know what I mean? Like, it felt like it was being fictionalized by someone who knew what they were doing as opposed to being fictionalized out of ignorance, if that makes any sense. Yeah, someone had, like, skimmed the Wikipedia article, so knew what names went to which gods and things like that. Yeah. And part of the reason why it feels like that is because the writer of the screenplay, John Balderston had actually covered the opening of King Tut's tomb in 1922 as a correspondent for New York World. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's there in Egypt. He had continued an interest in Egyptology. And then thanks to the success of his Dracula script, he was brought on to write the screenplay for the 1932 mummy. Right. Like we kind of just insinuated, you know, Balderston mixed real and fictional elements of Egyptian history and myth, while also structuring it along his classic Dracula formula, which we noted right away in our episode on it, and is also why that episode is titled Egyptian Dracula. Mm-hmm. Again, if you want to hear more about those, those historical and fictionalized Egyptian figures, you can listen to episode 35. Um, the other reason why the 1932 mummy is kind of big for Universal um, for the horror genre, but large, really, is that it's Carl Freund's first directorial debut. Up till then, he's been a cinematographer. Um, here he actually gets to direct the film. He doesn't last long as a director, unfortunately. He does about six films in total, with his last also being a horror film, 1935's Mad Love. Um, and then he kind of sticks to cinematography for the rest of the time, but it makes The Mummy kind of notable. Boris Karloff is, of course, The Mummy, featuring makeup by Jack Pierce. And overall, with the film, we found it a bit too tepid. 
Um, it's definitely horror, but it doesn't really scare you. So we, we talk a lot about how it's the philosophical middle of the list. Right. Yeah, if you're a worse movie than The Mummy, you're bad. And if you're a better movie than The Mummy, you're good. Yeah. And it's not like The Mummy's good or bad. It just exists. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of just existing is kind of because there's no real chemistry between any of the characters. Like I said, its structure is pretty much just based off of Dracula, and that's even more apparent when you still have David Manners in the traditional role, and you have Edward Van Sloan as the wise professor. Mm -hmm. um, it's not new enough to be more exciting than that. And unfortunately, part of the reason why it's tepid is also because of Karloff's stiff and cold acting that he brings to the role, and that's not because he's a poor actor, it was a an acting decision, because, you know, you'd think, I'm a mummy, I'm very stiff, like, he acts like he's very fragile, like, a strong breeze is going to, like, wither him away, and that kind of acting decision is totally fine, but when your script is structured in a way that's based on Dracula, you need to have some kind of charisma in the lead villain slash romantic rival. Yeah, for sure. And Karloff's acting choice didn't quite fit it. We did notice, though, that the only real horror in The Mummy comes in its prologue. Um, to kind of remind people what it was about, the 1932 Mummy opens with a recently excavated tomb of Imhotep, where a young archaeologist reads from the scrolls of the dead and accidentally brings Imhotep to life. Um, and this archaeologist goes mad from seeing this. That's the prologue. The rest of the film is based on Dracula. Um, it's ten years later, and Imhotep is masquerading as an Egyptian named Ardith Bey, who brings some archaeologists to where the tomb of his long-lost love, Anxanamun, is buried. He intends to basically revive this long-lost love. Around this time, he's introduced to Helen, who looks very similar to this long-lost love, and Imhotep decides that she's the reincarnation of Anxanamun. Imhotep plans to kill and mummify Helen to bring Anxanamun back to life as his bride, but in the, this process, in the climax of the film, Helen remembers her past life as Anxanamun and prays to Isis to save her, and it's thanks to Isis's intervention and basically causing a, a scroll to burst into flame that Imhotep's immortality is taken away and he actually crumbles to dust in front of our eyes. And that's the end of the film. We, at the time, ranked it at number 20 out of 41. Episode 35 is a long time ago. It's currently ranked at 43 out of 78. Okay. So still kind of half way a like little, a little lower yeah it's dropped a little lower than halfway yeah but we you know in our hearts it will always be halfway sure so that's about the whole mummy what about just his hand ah i see what you did there so as we've touched upon many times universal pictures had basically invented the american horror movie with the one-two punch of dracula and frankenstein in 1931 so it was very appropriate that they were also the company that resurrected the genre with Karloff and Lugosi in Son of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. The Universal of the 1940s was no longer the studio of the Lemleys, uh, no longer inclined to bleed money on lavish productions. Universal at this time was a subsidiary of J. Cheever Cowden's Standard Capital Corporation, and the studio's sole goal was financial solvency. All of Hollywood treated horror movies as a B-movie genre, so why should Universal be any different? Sequels, whether they were legitimate sequels or in-name-only sequels, uh, had dominated the return of horror. We've seen Son of Frankenstein, but also The Invisible Man Returns and The Return of Dr. X, and all these kind of semi-sequels mm -hmm. um, or in-name-only sequels. So, Universal's B-movie unit producer, Ben Pivar, was instructed to produce a follow-up to The Mummy, uh, which had yet to receive the sequel treatment that Frankenstein or Dracula or The Invisible Man 
had gotten. Mm-hmm. But this was not to be a direct sequel to the slow-paced, meditative original with its resurrection-based love story. Uh, Universal wanted something quicker in pace, something more broad and mainstream in its appeal, and also something cheaper. (laughs) Um, I mean, that tracks. The original 1932 film had cost $196,000, while Pivar's follow-up, The Mummy's Hand, would be given a budget of $80,000. So, like... Less than half. Yeah. To direct the film was Christy Cabanet, a 52-year-old director for hire who had served in the U.S. Navy before becoming an actor in early silent films in the pre-war era, and then finally a prolific director of low-to-medium-budget pictures, primarily at Poverty Row Studios. He seems well-equipped to deal with such a, a tight budget. The Mummy's Hand was his... 147th film in a career stretching back to 1911. Whoa. So this was just 30 years. Yeah, this is just another day at the office. Yeah. Uh, The writers were similarly B-movie veterans, uh, Griffin J. and Maxwell Shane, who was a former studio publicist. To portray the titular mummy, an unusual choice was made. Uh, They cast actor Tom Tyler, best known for his heroic roles in westerns and as Captain Marvel in the original superhero movie serial version of that character. Oh, so Boris Karloff isn't in this at all. No. That's actually a really big surprise. For the most part, a lot of the films that we've been seeing lately have had one or more veterans of horror. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it was that Karloff was over at Monogram and Columbia making his Mad Scientist and Mr. Wong movies and didn't want to be at Universal anymore, or if it was just the fact that Universal wanted to sort of make a clean break that this was a different thing, not a sequel to The Mummy, but as I said earlier, like a reboot of the franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Karloff's shadow sort of still loomed over the film because the choice to cast Tom Tyler was primarily made because Tyler's tall, thin frame made him a good visual match uh, for Boris Karloff so that stock footage from the first Mummy movie could be used. Yeah, money will always drive creative choices. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that also affected why they didn't cast Karloff, because while he was at these other, you know, B-movies at Columbia and stuff, he was also, like, getting really stringent about, like, you know, being paid... Like, his union rates and, like, working his union hours and stuff like that that was costing people money. And especially when you had something like The Mummy where you're sitting in the makeup chair with Jack Pierce for eight hours and Karloff will only work eight hours a day. Yeah. It's maybe not going to work out, right? Yeah. So, Tom Tyler was born Vincent Markowski in 1903. He would be a sailor, coal miner, lumberjack, prize fighter and record-breaking weightlifter before arriving in Hollywood in 1924, initially working as a props man and an extra. Within a year of that, he was starring in westerns, uh, primarily serials, but occasionally features, and managed to make the transition from silent films to talkies, despite what was sometimes considered to be an awkward style of line delivery. He worked for Poverty Row Studios, like Film Booking Offices of America, Syndicate Pictures, Monogram Pictures, Reliable Pictures, and Victory Pictures. I have to stress, like, he was one of these guys who was making, you know, eight to ten movies a year, every year, and they were all westerns. Most of them were serials, and he was the hero cowboy in all of them. Mm -hmm. So he had, like, a solid 15-year career of doing the same role. Yeah, he has a brand. Exactly. In 1939, John Ford directed what is traditionally considered the first Western A picture, uh, Stagecoach, starring John John Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. Uh, In which Tyler managed to secure a small supporting role. He tried to parlay this into a move to the major studios with small supporting roles in Gone with the Wind and The Grapes of Wrath, among others. It was during this period that he appeared in The Mummy's Hand, a role he ended up hating because of the extremely long time in the makeup chair of Jack Pierce that he had to endure to be turned into the monster. After this role, 
he returned to westerns and serials with Republic Pictures, which was the biggest of the Poverty Row outfits. It would be in 1941 that he would play Captain Marvel in Republic's serial adaptation, the first live-action portrayal of a comic book superhero. Mm -hmm. He would follow that up with a starring role as the Phantom in 1943, another comics superhero, before rheumatoid arthritis physically limited him to a career-ending extent. The film's heroic lead is played by Dick Foran, whose acting career began as a supporting player in 1934. He rarely played leads, but he would often star as a singing cowboy in Western musicals throughout the 1930s. Uh, He signed to Universal in 1938, and they transferred him away from these Western musicals and just used him in a variety of genres in their B-movie department. Sure. His romantic counterpart in The Mummy's Hand is Peggy Moran, a 22-year-old actress and daughter of a pinup artist and a dancer, and she was also strictly a B-movie star. She would marry director Henry Coster in 1942 and retire from film acting, but would continue to appear in films as Coster would sneak in a bust of her as set dressing in every one of his movies. Uh, okay. Sure, why not? I mean, okay. Um, this is kind of a neat time to just, like quickly ask. Sure. So I know westerns at this point are B-movies, and horror films are, you know, being relegated to B-movies and stuff. Do you see a lot of people moving between genres and B-movies, or is it like, you know, I'm this type of B-movie star? I think you you didn't see people moving between genres. People were western actors, or they were horror actors, or they were science fiction actors. I feel like, um... Especially with Westerns, people got, like, really pigeonholed. Um, There was an idea with the studios that, like, audiences didn't want to see their favorites in other types of environments, that that would, like, confuse audiences. And, like, you know, because, oh, Tom Tyler's a Western actor, so if he's in this movie, this must be a Western. Mm. You know, what's he doing here? Why doesn't he have a cowboy hat on? Um, You did occasionally see it, though, just as like a cost-cutting thing, right? Where, okay, well, you're signed to the studio, you work in B-movies, you're used to this kind of salary, so we need someone for this B-movie that's shooting next week, so we're just going to put you in it. Um, Because ultimately, they had no choice. Yeah. Right? Um, So generally speaking, you didn't see that kind of moving between genres, but sometimes you just did out of necessity. Or if, like, the studio didn't have people who were established in that genre yet, like... You know, if you were just getting into horror movies, you don't have established horror B-movie actors, so you're going to bring them in from your other B-movie genres and see who sinks and who swims. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Bolstering the cast is the addition of a comic relief character. Um, That's a great sign. Yeah, it's something we haven't really had in a while. Yeah. Um, it was definitely like a major part of the early... American horror movies. Yeah, I mean, we did see it in Son of Ngagi. This time around, uh, it's Wallace Ford, the noted vaudevillian and actor. Ford was born Samuel Grundy in England in 1898 to a very poor family. His parents gave him up to his aunt and uncle, and then at age three, they gave him up to an orphanage. And then at seven... That orphanage shipped him and several other children to Canada as part of the British Empire's ongoing attempts to populate the Dominion. He was adopted by a Manitoba family, but ran away at age 11 to join a vaudeville troupe called the Winnipeg Kitties. So literally ran away to join the circus? Yes. At 16, Samuel and another young runaway named Wallace Ford decided to ride the rails to the U.S. to seek their fortunes. Ford was killed beneath the wheels of the train during the trip, so Samuel took his name and became Wallace Ford. Ford served in the U.S. Cavalry in World War I, and then in the 1920s became a successful Broadway actor. He made the move to movies in 1931, and in 1932 he appeared as Frozo in Todd Browning's Freaks. Oh, so we've seen him before. Yes. Uh, So Frozo, if you don't remember, was the clown. 
We also saw him as the male lead in 1933's Night of Terror. He was like a wisecracking reporter who was in love with the girl in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We haven't seen him since, but he's continued to act consistently since then, uh, with lead roles in B pictures and supporting roles in A pictures. Similarly to the original Mummy, none of the theoretically Egyptian characters are played by actors even in the right ballpark of ethnicity. (laughs) Uh, In addition to the Lithuanian-American Tom Tyler as the titular Mummy, Italian Eduardo Cianelli is the High Priest of Karnak, um, while Englishman George Zuko is Professor Andoheb. Zuko was born in England in 1886. His uh, mother was English. His father was a Greek merchant. Um, And Zuko began acting on stage in Canada in 1908. He toured as a vaudeville act in the 1910s, fought for the British in World War I, where he was shot in the arm and lost the use of two fingers in his right hand. And in the 1920s, he was a successful stage actor. By the 30s, he was appearing in films, uh, often in small roles or supporting parts. But in 1939, he got a break. The role of Professor Moriarty in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Holmes and Watson. Nice. That's sort of the the movie that for a long time was like the definitive Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. He parlayed this into a career playing villains and adopted a policy of accepting every role he was offered so as to keep in work. That's a good policy. One last member of the cast I want to quickly mention is Cecil Kellaway, an experienced veteran character actor who we last enjoyed as Inspector Sampson in The Invisible Man Returns. Oh yeah, the really competent policeman. Yeah, he has a small part in this film. Okay, cool. So The Mummy's Hand was released on September 20th, 1940, uh, primarily to negative reviews. Oh no. It was criticized for mixing horror and comedy. That is really funny. That's where the whole genre started. Yep. It was criticized for being unable to settle on a tone, and also for not delivering enough scares or suspense. Okay. That's, those are all very interesting comments, given how the genre has developed. Yeah, it used to be you got criticized for having too much scariness in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And not enough comedy? Yeah. The actors' performances were called too casual, and the New York Times asked, if they don't seem scared, why should we be? That is a good point. Uh, However, the film was financially successful, uh, enough for Universal to give it a sequel. Uh, The Mummy's Foot? Today it is available on the Mummy Legacy Collection DVD or Blu-ray from Universal Home Video, and can also be streamed on the PlayStation Video Store. Okay. So, folks, if you'd like to watch along, um, those are the resources where you can find them. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss The Mummy's Hand from 1940. See you on the other side, everybody. scream scene we just finished watching the mummy's hand from 1940 directed by christy cabinet it definitely has faster pacing than the first mummy right but yet still nothing really happens very true yeah in fact i would argue that less happens but the pacing feels like it's more yes i had fun watching this that doesn't mean it's good yes It is not good. I enjoyed yelling at the screen with you. Tell us what it's about. Okay. So we start at the ruins of the Temple of Karnak in Egypt, which, if you haven't been, looks exactly like Bronson Canyon in Southern California. With a very Aztec style to it. Very true. And there, um, an Egyptian gentleman named Andaheb 
or as he will be called by the white characters in this movie, <clears throat> he has journeyed there to meet with the high priest of Karnak. And I guess the idea we're supposed to get is that this is like a secret sect of like high priests who have like carried on the tradition of like the Egyptian old gods for thousands of years in secret. Not that really any of that is said out loud, but that's the impression I guess we're supposed to get. And Andahab meets with the old high priest who is dying and basically says, like, you're going to be the next high priest, so I need to explain to you, like, what our deal is. So he takes him over to the, like, viewing waters from the original The Mummy, and we go into stock footage mode, uh, where he explains the backstory of Karis, who is not... Imhotep. And Karis is in love with the princess Anaka, who is not Anxanamun. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is they're basically taking Imhotep's origin story flashback from the original 1932 The Mummy, and then whenever there's a close-up of Boris, just putting in a close-up of Tom Tyler. Yeah. Um, so you just get to play, like, Boris, not Boris throughout the scene. Take a shot whenever you see Boris. Right. So, same deal. The princess dies... Uh, Karis is heartbroken, and he goes to steal not the Scroll of Thoth, but Tana leaves, a made-up thing that will apparently give Princess Anaka immortality. I assume you'd bring her back to life first. Or that it's how you bring... Anyways, yeah. so the Pharaoh's guards find him, and uh, Karis, not Imhotep, is, um, you know, mummified alive, and buried and the slaves are killed. You know this story. It's from the mummy. So the high priests keep Karis alive by feeding him tana leaves. If you feed him like the fluid that you distill down from three leaves per day, it just keeps him alive. If you do nine, it will like bring him back to like animated status and don't do more than nine or the movie will be exciting and cost money. <laughs> He'll uh, try to take over the world. Yeah, he'll become like a full-scale demon monster, the likes of which no one has ever seen. So the, the reason why the priests keep Karis around is, I guess, because then if anyone tries to disturb Anaka's tomb, Karis will go after them. So the old priest dies and passes his responsibility on to Andahab. Meanwhile, in Cairo, American archaeologist Steve Banning and his dopey sidekick, Babe Jensen, are out of money and have no prospects until they find a broken vase at a bazaar that turns out to just have the key to finding Anaka's tomb on it. They bring it to the Cairo Museum, and Dr. Petrie's like, this is totally legit, let's show it to Professor Andahab, who runs the museum, and he's like, this is a fake GTFO, you're not getting any of my money. And we know it's actually because Andahab's the villain. Yes, the villain, but he's trying to protect the location of this tomb. Yes, because in the context of the movie, he is the villain. Um, so, being somewhat depressed about this, uh, Steve and Babe go get drunk, and at the bar they meet a great magician, uh, the great Solvani, who they convince to finance an expedition because he's drunk? And rich. Well... He has money. He has the money that they need. Yes. He's rich in the sense that when you have no money, everyone is rich. Meanwhile, uh, Andahab knows that they've done this because he's got like a network of spies all throughout Cairo. And he goes to Andahab's daughter, Marta, and is like, hey, so we're just going around letting people know that like there are a ton of swindlers in Egypt that will try to like get you to finance their expeditions, but really they're just going to run off with your money. And, you know, so the Egyptian government's just warning people like yourselves. And she's like, oh, thanks for the warning. And then her drunk dad comes home and is like, hey, expedition! And she thinks they've been conned. So she goes to confront Steve and Babe, and they're like, no, really, we're on the level. And basically they all decide to go on the expedition together so that Silvani and his daughter can kind of be sure that they're not conning them. They head out into the desert, by means of stock footage, <laughs> and arrive in the Hill of the Seven Jackals, which looks remarkably like Bronson Canyon in Southern California. Uh, there they eventually uncover a cave, and the cave has like a single sarcophagus in it. 
and everyone's kind of bummed because this is not like the tomb of a great Egyptian princess, and what's up, and where's the princess, and all of that. As they're sort of examining the find, they find a mummy in the tomb, who is, of course, Karis, and they're all like, wow, like, he feels, like, really alive. He's so well-preserved. Yeah, like, my god. Uh, And they're all kind of baffled by this. At one point, Petri is examining the mummy by himself, and Endeb just kind of shows up. He's like, hey, you're a really shitty scientist. Didn't you notice this mummy has a pulse? And he's like, oh, wow, you're right. And then Endeb's like, yeah, watch what happens when I feed him nine Tana leaves. And Petri's like, oh, really? Huh? And then the mummy comes to life and kills Petri. Uh, Endeb and the mummy disappear. Everybody else comes back into the cave and is like, holy shit, Petri's dead. Well, anyways, on with exploring these caves. They don't really investigate or react or anything. The deal is, Karis needs, like, regular doses of the Tana fluid to keep going. So what Andahab does is he has, like, one of his rogues uh, sneaking around through the camp, like, putting Tana tana fluid vials in people's tents, and that leads Karis there to, like, kill those people. So Karis is kind of going through attacking people one at a time. He kills their guide, Ali, and then they're like, wow, Petri's dead and Ali's dead, and they both seem to have died in the same manner. Well, and, um... They're trying to figure out how Karis is connected to Anaka and, like, why they haven't found the princess's tomb yet. And they're like, oh, could there be maybe, like, tunnels connecting this to, like, some other tomb somewhere else? And they're trying to, like, figure this out. And Karis attacks Sultani. His MO the whole movie has just been to, like, strangle people to death. This time he, like, strangles Sultani to... Half death? Yeah, to just... Like passing out, right? Exactly. He gets him to zero HP, but doesn't kill him outright. And <laughs> then he just grabs Marta and just you know he's basically Karis realizes he's the monster in a horror movie, so he takes the girl off to his lair for reasons that aren't apparent. Babe and Steve find out that Karis has taken Marta from talking to Silvani after they manage to get him to wake up, and they go after the mummy. Now. I should stop and mention this here. Karis the mummy is much more, I think, what we expect a movie mummy to be, as opposed to what Boris Karloff was in the original. Yeah. And by that, what I mean is he spends the entire movie as, like, a shuffling, shambling toilet paper boy. Yeah. Um, Which means that, like, he moves very slowly. Comically so. Comically slowly. So he goes into the cave, they run in after him, and he's gone. And they're like, wow, that's weird. So Steve finally thinks to look behind the sarcophagus. And, oh, hey, there's a big tunnel. And, like, goes down it. Babe runs around to the other side of the hill. And there's the Temple of Karnak. Just sitting there like we saw at the start of the movie. How is it that no one has seen this thing? Also, specifically, how did you guys not see this thing? Yeah. Like, it's... It's It's like a brisk walk away. Yeah. So... Karis takes Marta deep into the temple, which also is the tomb of Anaka. Not that that's important. And there's Antahab, and he lays Marta down on, like, a mad scientist horror movie, like, slab with straps so that she can be strapped down. And Antahab just sort of announces, like, I think you're super hot, so I'm going to make you immortal with Tana Leaves, and I'm going to be immortal with Tana Leaves, and then we're just both going to be immortal together because you're dope, and we should be immortal mates forever out of nowhere. Like, this is the first we're hearing of this. Yeah. Um, And he also, like, explains to Marta how, like, Karis and the Tana Leaves works and that if Karis gets more than nine, it'll be a big problem and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Andahab then just sends Karis back out to find and kill Steve. Andahab then, like, goes outside where Babe is, outside the temple, and they both try to play, like, a game of, like, do what I want or I'll shoot. But Babe the comic relief character actually fucking shoots Andahab. Multiple times. And then the dude, like, tumbles down the steps of the temple and just dies. Yeah. So, like, score one for Babe. Uh, He (laughs) goes in to the temple. Steve makes it in through the secret tunnel. Then Karis makes it in, uh, because Karis is very slow-moving. Marta's rescued. Steve goes to shoot Karis, which, of course, doesn't work. 
Marta's like, hey, don't let him get at the Tana Juice. So they, like, smash the Tana Juice to the ground. He goes down to the stones to start, like, licking it up, and then they dump a torch on him, and he just bursts into flame. Yep. Uh, and then they escape. Basically, that's the end of the movie. Um, I guess they got rich because they did find the tomb, and now they're going back to America, and Steve's going to get, like, tenure. Yeah. So that's the movie. The end. So on paper, I think this is a lot more what you expect from a mummy movie than the original. Like, it's people going on an expedition and disturbing a tomb and invoking a curse, and there's, like, the toilet paper boy killing people off one at a time. Like, I think on paper, this is what you think you want. Yeah. But it's not. No. I feel like a movie exec was like, that first mummy, that one was boring. I want comedy. I want action. I want romance. Now get me some stock footage. Yeah, pretty much. And we wound up with this. Yeah, it it kind of immediately becomes clear why actually the first movie was superior. Yeah, like definitely. You very quickly realize that the mummy is the opposite of threatening. You, do you mean... You, I feel like you need to be clear which mummy you're talking about. Karis. Karis. Okay, cool. Because, yeah, you're totally right. Because the mummy is just under someone's control, mm-hmm. being told what to do. Mm-hmm. He's shambling in a zombie kind of way. Right. And, like, even when the master is shot... The mummy isn't coming after anyone. He's just like... He just wants his fix. Just give me my juice. Like... Give me, give me my apple juice, Mom. <laughs> like, the thing about... There's, there's two things about this. The shambling zombie thing. Mm-hmm. Like, zombies are only scary, really, when you have them in a group. Because the fear is that they're going to overwhelm you, right? Yeah. If you just have one zombie wrapped in toilet paper... Just That's, knock him over. Just knock him over. Yeah, he's, it's, or just jog away. Just <laughs> jog away and you'll be without, like, out of range very quickly. Yeah. Like, it's funny because you watch the 1932 The Mummy and Karloff's only in, like, classic mummy appearance mode in the prologue. And then he turns into basically the Ardeth Bay character. And I think a modern audience sees that and goes like, oh, but I wanted a mummy. And then you see a movie with, like, an actual mummy and you're like, oh, yeah, no making him more ambulatory and, like, an actual character actually is the better decision. Yeah. I will say Jack Pierce did another amazing job with the makeup. When we first see Karis get pulled out of the sarcophagus, he does just look exactly like Karloff. Yeah, it's the same design. Yeah. But then as, you know, he's moving around and you can kind of get a feel for the rest of the outfit and the rest of the makeup it's done really well and in close-ups with the mummy kind of coming at you um they've done like they've they've blocked out his eyes and mouth so it looks hollow yeah 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 so his eyes are just like this empty blackness yeah so that was fairly effective that was cool yeah what i really found interesting about this movie is if you watch the 1932 mummy Mm. And then you watch the 1999 Mummy, you're like, how did we get here? Yeah, this is how we got here. This is exactly how we got here. Um, from the way that the high priest acts, the Mummy will be is like a plague upon humanity. It's going to destroy us, bring up about the apocalypse, all these things. We need to hide where he is and protect that location. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of conspiracy level of, like, museum officials. Like, I don't know. You could see a lot of how this movie links to the 1999 Yeah, it's mummy. the through line. Because yeah. the, the 1999 Mummy movie uses the Imhotep Anxanamen storyline. Yeah. But the high priests from that movie, even though they're the good guys in that movie, they're very much based on the high priests of Karnak here, where they're, like, the secret society that's been watching over things. The other thing is, the heroes in the 1999 Mummy are much more these archetypes. Yeah. Because the heroes in the 32 movie are the cast of Dracula again. Whereas this, we've got, you know, the... We've got the square-jawed hero archaeologist. We've got sort of the damsel in distress who has an attitude because it's the 40s. We've got the, you know, doofy sidekick. We've got the cackling evil villain. I mean, 
it's clear that this is a B-movie because all the characters in this movie are basically the broadest of archetypes with no depth to them whatsoever, but that's those archetypes that form the cast of the 1999 movie. So, yeah, it's a very... I I picked up on that, too. This is very much, like, the missing link there. And it got me thinking, because the 99 Mummy is, like, an adventure movie. It's not horror. Mm -hmm. Um, And it works. Like, it's... it Bringing in those elements with, like, archaeology, it makes sense to bring in Mm action-adventure, not just because you have, like, Indiana Jones kind of setting the stage there, but that makes sense. And then if we look back to, like, the 32 mummy, mm-hmm. it really is just Dracula. It's not a mummy movie kind of on its own. And then this is kind of the most mummy movie pure that yeah. that we've seen so far. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, like, can a mummy movie actually be scary? Actually be full-fledged horror Or is that just a zombie movie? So I think, I've been thinking about this too, because you're right, like, this movie's the midpoint, right? Like, the 90s Mummy's an adventure movie, 30s Mummy's horror, but it's more of a Dracula ripoff. This is a Mummy movie, but it's, like, one foot in both camps. And I think it's interesting to think about, like, what makes that difference. One thing I was thinking about was, when the monster comes to you, it's horror. Mm -hmm. When you go to the monster, it's an adventure. Yeah. Right? We talked about this in the very first episode of the show, like the difference between heroes and survivors, right? You know, The Hobbit isn't a horror movie um, because they're off on a quest to kill Smaug, right? Whereas, like, I don't know, you know, if the monster comes to you and upsets your idyllic life, that's more horror. And that's why the 30s mummy is more horror, because it's about this guy coming in and, like, the fear in that movie, really, is the same fear that's in Dracula, which is miscegenation. Um, it's, oh no, the foreigners are going to get our women. With that element removed in this movie, um, for whatever reason, probably some code reasons, um, because the whole love story thing isn't here anymore. Yeah. It's weird because Karis has the same damn backstory as Imhotep, but it doesn't matter. It never comes up. Like, Karis is just uh, Andeheb's lackey, and they never, like, see the Princess Anaka. Like, that's the princess has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. So they, the only reason he has that backstory is so that they can pad out the movie's runtime with stock footage for the flashbacks. And that's some, like, more Egyptian flavor without having to spend money. Exactly. So you've taken away that. So what becomes the horror in this movie? It's just straight up that the mummy gon' get you. Yeah. Right? And... I think, yeah, I think if you're on an adventure to go find the mummy, that becomes less horror. Now, to answer your question of can a mummy movie be horror, I think the answer is yes. I think the way you'd have to do it is have people get, like, trapped in the tomb with the mummy and turn the tomb into a kind of... Like a slasher flick. Yeah, and turn the tomb into a haunted house with booby traps and secret passages and Mm -hmm. uh, changing doors and things. And, you know, you're in the dark and you can't escape. Because if you're out in the open fields of Southern California, (laughs) you just jog away from the mummy. You have to be in a confined area and you have to be on the mummy's home turf for the traditional shambly mummy, I think, to be effectively scary. I think you could also make a fairly effective mummy movie by using themes of, like upsetting your ancestors, something like that, or, like, even going with colonization and, like, white people getting... Getting what they deserve. Getting what they deserve for uprooting, like, or, like, disturbing these traditional burial places. Well, we talked about that with the original movie, that those themes were there. It was just weird because we were supposed to be sympathizing with the disturbers, right? Yeah. Um, They're gone here. Yeah, um, completely. It's it's just that, because now we have a cackling villain who's using the mummy as, like, a lackey. The, the, the morality in this movie is much more black and white than it was in that original film. Mm-hmm. You know, watching this movie, I think about the fact that basically what they've done is they've taken Karloff's character from the original 
and they've taken the Imhotep part and the Ardeth Bay part and split them into two characters. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, the high priest is Ardeth Bay, mm -hmm. and the shambling mummy is the shambling mummy. Right. And in doing so, like, I can see why that's done, so that you can have a, you know, a villain who can be alive and have a personality, and at the same time you can have the scary monster, right? It makes sense on paper. Mm -hmm. But it really breaks the story in some interesting ways. For one thing, I don't really understand why Andaheb needs the fucking mummy. Yeah, the idea is supposed to be like, this is going to be your way of protecting the tomb when all else fails. But he seems to do pretty good before the mummy gets arisen. And it's also the fact that they've given him this, like, network of, like, spies and assassins and exactly. thieves working for him. It's like, if you have a dude who can sneak into everyone's tent to put the Tana fluid in, just have that dude kill people. The mummy is so inept with how slow he is, and he just strangles people. Like, it, you know, it's, if it goes wrong, a stiff breeze is gonna knock this guy over. Yeah. It, it doesn't really make sense. Also, this is a problem I have with every iteration of the story, whether it's the 30s movie, this movie, or the 90s movie. I have this problem in every version. Okay. The idea is supposed to be that Kara slash Imhotep has committed this great crime, this great sin, so that's why they're going to mummy him alive, and so on. But then they put this curse on him that's like going to turn him into a god or whatever, and it's like, what? That's not a punishment, my guys. Like, they do it in the 90s one where it's like, if you disturb Imhotep's tomb, he'll fucking turn into Satan. And it's like, what? No, it's not that. Evie reads from the Book of the Dead and brings him back by accident. Right, but the curse is that if you bring him back, he'll be more powerful than anything could ever imagine. Yes. That's why the priests have been watching out to make sure no one does it. But it's like, why would you put that curse on him? Same thing with Karis here, where it's like, why, why did they keep him alive? So... Like, I'm not going to say and try to make the case that this movie has even an inkling about Egyptian myth or understandings of ritual or beliefs. Right, because Tana leaves are made up, for one thing. As fuck, yeah. Um, but, if like, with what I was kind of saying in the context setting, if you don't have your personality separated from your body, you don't actually go on to live in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So he's basically in a continuous purgatory by being kept alive in this coffin. Which, like, I think that's me kind of, like, reasoning it out. This movie has not actually put that kind of thought into it. Yeah, because what I'm sitting here saying is, I get that, but why? <laughs> like, why have you kept this guy alive? How is that... Like, I get that keeping him in purgatory or whatever, like, in a, in a state of undeath might be a kind of torture, but it also just feels like maybe not necessary. Because the other thing is, is they say that they've done it because then that's, like, their insurance plan on Anaka's tomb. Like, no one can disturb the tomb. Karis will go get him. The thing that the movie fails to establish for me is what the fuck is so special about Anaka's tomb? Yeah. Like, what makes Anaka's tomb different from all the other tombs that, like all of the Egyptologists have been pillaging out of your country for hundreds of years. They say in a throw-off line that it is rumored to be even more grand than King Tut's. But that's it. Well, and the, it's a throw-off line. The other thing is, like, King Tut wasn't important in terms of, like, the history of Egypt or his tomb being especially important to, like, you know, if you were an ancient Egyptian, you wouldn't give a shit. The only reason why King Tut was famous to white people was because his tomb was intact. That's all. Like, it... The, there was some mystery around it, too, with him being, like, 13 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it's just that the movie doesn't establish, doesn't put any effort into setting up why any of this makes sense. Like, like the fact... It's the same thing with the fact that, like, Andahab deciding that he wants Marta comes out of nowhere in the third act just so that we can have the imperiled woman. And it's like, that would have made sense if you had kept the resurrection love story, she's... You could have just, you know, done the same thing as the original, and she's the incarnation of Anaka or whatever. But they don't. It's like they've made all these decisions to differ it from the original. And it's clear, like, part of the goal is to make it not just Dracula again. Like, all the changes they've done have very successfully made this not Dracula again, but they haven't replaced what they've taken away 
with anything new to help fill in the gaps created yeah. by those changes. Yeah, so what we're kind of left with is like some stuff that's vestigial from the first mummy and stuff that's just thrown on as like garnish. Yeah, and it's it's sort of been placed into this what they've done is they've taken it out of the Dracula blueprint and plugged it into like an adventure serial blueprint. Yeah. Basically. And that's why it has kind of a foot in both worlds. Because I, I would still kind of categorize this as horror. Mm-hmm. It's just dumb and bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would agree that this is still uh, horror. It's just that very... What it is is it has a very um, Saturday matinee kind of feel, right? It, B-movie. Yeah. it's it, it has sort of a feeling that's like, you know, you have to be under nine years old for this to really be, like, something spooky and scary. For everyone else in the audience, they're just laughing and having a fun time and, like, making out with whoever they brought on a date to this movie, right? Yeah. So the last thing I want to say about this movie, and we've kind of intimated about it before. Sure. This movie is very cheap. It's, like, besides the fact that you can clearly see that's Boris Karloff in these like, stock footage. Because, to be fair, it is, like, eight years later. Maybe the average person wouldn't recognize that it's stock. But you can tell it's Boris. And you can tell fucking when it's, like, a close-up of Liv Tyler, or whatever his name is. Um, And then back to the stock footage. And, like, anything expensive in this movie is stock footage, right? Even if it's not stuff involving Boris Karloff and Tom Tyler's shared weird characters. Um, You know, any shots of crowds or Egypt, really, period, is all stock footage. You know, anything else is there clearly just like a half-hour drive out of L.A. Which is also like, why do you have this many characters if you're trying to be cheap? Sure. They don't serve any purpose. But they can talk to one another and eat up time. Valuable, valuable time. (sighs) I mean, I guess, like we said... The black dyes thing on the mummy is cool. It oh, is. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Like at one point, they like go to like punch him or whatever, and like <laughs> puffs of dust come off him. So as if he's like actually dusty. Yeah, that was just a nice touch. I yeah. did enjoy that. Like where the money went in this movie is to the like Temple of Karnak interior set at the end, where they're going to where he's got Marta. Yeah, and to Jack Pierce. Like, the money went to Jack Pierce, and I'm sure he was very happy that his mummy monster makeup got to be used throughout the entire film this time, and not just one scene. Yeah. But, like, that's it. Yeah. Let's rank this. For sure. Let's get this done. Uh, um, where were you looking? Something we forgot to mention. We said that this cave with the mummy is on the Hill of Seven Jackals or some shit. Oh, yeah. But, like, when it's supposed to be spooky, they just have, like, this wolf howl, like, on repeat for Foley work. And it's just, like, over and over. But it's not just because of the wolves that I feel like this film is pretty comparable with Werewolf of London. (laughs) Um, It's the fact that it doesn't know what story it's telling. Yeah, like Werewolf of London, it has that same feel of, like, just missing the mark of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right? And they're both shot in Southern California. Um, So I I feel like The Mummy's Hand could either go above or below Werewolf of London, currently sitting at 57. Okay. I sort of started at a little bit of a different spot than you, but I think we're more or less simpatico. I came to the conclusion that this movie was not as good as uh, Before I Hang from last week. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't sure if it was better or worse than Spanish Dracula. Uh, Because Spanish Dracula was not very good. I don't care what hipster critics think. And, you know, I kept going down, and I came to the conclusion it was definitely better than 1912 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So my my floor ended up being about where you were looking. Mm. Um... See, The Invisible Ray was neat with it being kind of the first, like, 
stalker slasher film. Yeah. A little bit. Like, it's it nuts. <laughs> like, it's a bonkers film. Um, but that, that made it kind of neat. And because this is kind of straddling both, like, mummies, <laughs> 32 and 99 mummy, I feel like that really lowers it on the list for me. So the thing about Werewolf of London is, like, it's a bad werewolf movie because it hasn't figured out, like, they haven't figured out what a werewolf movie should be yet. Yeah. Because what Werewolf of London really is, is it's a Jekyll and Hyde remake with lycanthropy instead of, like... Alcoholism. Right. Um, so, whereas this movie, this movie is the movie that breaks mummy movies away from being a cheap copy of something else, right? We're no longer copying Dracula, but the weakness of this movie is we haven't figured out what a mummy movie should be yet. Yeah. You know, we, we're, we're not this, but we don't know what we are, is kind of the issue here. Whereas Werewolf of London, they hadn't figured it out, so they were still using this previous template. But they were getting close, mm-hmm. right? Like, the the feeling of c- being cursed, um, not wanting to hurt your loved ones. It's an unhappy ending mm-hmm. at the end. Like, he ends up dying and getting shot. But that's also the ending of Jekyll and Hyde, right? I mean, yes, but I'm trying to think of, like, the classic points... Werewolf stuff. Of werewolf stuff, yeah. I just think that, ultimately... Mummy's Hand is not good, mm. but I think it's um, doing more to push things forward, I think, than like Werewolf of London was, which was a very backward-looking movie. Like, even in 1935, it felt old-fashioned. Yeah. Also, while The Mummy's Hand is not good, if you sat me down and you said, you can watch The Mummy's Hand or you can watch Werewolf of London... I think I would pick The Mummy's Hand because it's a lot more fun. Werewolf of London, in addition to kind of being bad and confused, also was like... Not fun. Not fun. It was just like... Tedious. Tedious. It was very tedious. So you're saying... I'm saying above Werewolf of London, below Invisible Ray. I'm happy with that, but Mm. you have to answer this question for me. Okay. What's with the hand? Yeah, that has nothing to do with anything, right? It's yeah. just, it's the title of the movie, but there's nothing special about his hand Like he in strangles, the but that's not important? Yeah, he strangles because that's the only way you're allowed to kill people in the postcode world. Yeah. Like, they couldn't just call it The Mummy because it's not a remake, and, like, there were stricter rules about shit like that back then. But they couldn't call it, like, Return of the Mummy or The Mummy's Revenge or something because it's not, like, a sequel. But, like... Why not call it, like, Curse of the Mummy or something? Like, I, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's a bad title. Yeah. Okay, entering the list at number 57 on our list that now has 78 films on it is The Mummy's Hand from 1940, directed by Christy Cabanet. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films that we've mentioned. Again, if you want to listen to The Original Mummy, that's episode 35. Yeah, take a look there. You can also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also questions, concerns, suggestions, anything of the sort. If you feel that we have mistreated Werewolf of London or The Mummy's Hand in any way, send us a note through Tumblr or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also shout at us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. We appreciate all your support. That support can come in many forms. We love that you listen to the show, but you could also tell other people to listen to the show. It's September, which means it's, it's almost... October. Yeah, it's almost October, which means it's Halloween. So it's time, folks, for the spooks and the haunts and the haints and the scarums and the ghosts and the ghouls and the ghasts and all of that. Did you say haints? Haints. What? Listen, I'll get you to a dictionary later. We don't have time. Um, so tell your friends about the show. If they're starting to get into that spooky mood and they want some old school recommendations, uh, what they should watch, you know, tell them. You should watch Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, 
but maybe you should listen to this podcast to kind of get understand a, what it's about. What what's going on here in this movie? Let people know about the show, uh, whether that's in person or whether that's online. You can um, feel free to share us on the social meds uh, and let people know about us. Another way you can support us heading into the Halloween season, we would really appreciate. Uh, seeing your support on our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash podcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At higher levels, you get access to bonus audio, uh, horror fiction. Um, I might do some additional bonus stuff throughout September and October just because we're leading up into the spooky times. And if we hit our Patreon goal, uh, we will start doing monthly bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films, which means we might actually be able to talk about the 1999 Mummy instead of just talking around it all the time. It's one of my favorite movies. Please let me talk about it. Yeah, you can tell because every time I get close to criticizing it, uh, I, I get, uh, I I get come slapped up with, down. I, I come in with, well, actually, <laughs> Here's according to scene three... Yeah, just start no-prizing <laughs> the hell out of me over I'm here. I'm so sorry. So... Anyways, yeah, we would really appreciate it if you headed over to that Patreon and let us know how much you enjoy the show through your dollars. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I feel like this could go either way. Okay. So the movie's from Monogram. Uh. Yeah. It stars Boris Karloff. He hasn't had a good lead. As a mad scientist. I've never heard of this. Experimenting on an ape. Oh no. In an adaptation of the play The Ape, which uh, we have previously seen adapted into the movie House of Mystery, directed by William Nye, who also directs this version. But the script is by Kurt Siedmak, writer of Return of Dr. X and The Invisible Man Returns. Uh, I don't know, man. It's The Ape from 1940. Okay. We'll give it a shot. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye.